This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Nine and you're tuned to Radio Marinara on 3RRR, either on your FM dial or streaming via the web. My name is Dr Beach. And I'm Dr Surf. How are you going, Surf? I'm good. What a beautiful day. It's not bad. Beautiful sunny day, balloons are out. It, it is. even misty coming up, Peninsula Link, East Link. So it's autumn. And the balloons are in the air. Boy, what, am I happy it's autumn. <laughs> We've had some good waves in the last month. You've been out there this week, so Yes, this, this week's been really good in the lead-up to the school halls and Easter and Bells Beach, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, we have um, one guest in the studio, and we're getting somebody else on air to talk about the history of that. Mm. And our guest is... John Collins, who used to run the competition. And he's going to talk about all the things you need to do to run a successful surf competition, and it's mind-boggling how much work's involved. It's certainly moved on from the the old days of just rolling up with a combi and a megaphone. (laughs) I know nothing about surf competitions. I never go and watch them. So I've got lots of questions to ask. And also in the studio today, we're joined by Perrin Cook, Dr. Perrin Cook from Monash, who's going to come on in about 10 minutes and talk to us about bioturbation. Wormholes. Wormholes, yeah. Not the cosmological kind, but literally wormholes. And what other animals do, which bury stuff in the... In the sediment, sediment for us, yeah. Mm. In the sediment, on, not only and on how, Earth, but underneath the... How necessary the Essential it is it sure to is. the life of the oceans. Before we do that, let's have a bit of weather. Today, as we've already said, monk, shuffle, shuffle, <laughs> shuffle. It's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be 23 degrees and um, 
mostly sunny, getting warm later on in the week. And if you're going out on the water today, the tides, we have low tide today at 9.30... No, high, th- high tide today, 9.30 in Melbourne. And at the heads where it's important, it's going to be low tide at about 1 o'clock. Yeah. That's you agree right. with that? Yeah. Cool. About a 7 o'clock high. <laughs> and the surf today, you want to get down pretty soon. It's The wind's a bit wonky, sort of coming from the west... Northwest, it'll be good down the west coast. Some small waves down there in the Janjuk area, very nice, but not too good on the east coast by the looks of things. Okay, and the wind's going to pick up sea breezy this afternoon, so I suggest you go down this morning. Get out there, mm. get out of bed. Water's still reasonably warm, and it's starting to come down a bit. It was a bit chilly during the week, mainly due to the winds, but there was some good swell during the week. Yeah, very my son was down at Anglesey, he said it was good. Yeah, Monday was outstanding. That's all I'll say before that front came through. So it's good to see. We've been waiting all summer for this time of year because, as I like to say, when the weather weather gets cold enough to put a hoodie on, the fun park's open. (laughs) And the fun's starting again for another year. Summer's not the time to surf for an old fellow like me. We like the points with the big big winter swells coming in and the northwesterly winds. I can see you getting excited. Oh, yeah, I love this time of year. It's wonderful. You got any news from the surf world? Not really. Bells is starting. The Bells competition starts this week, I think on Wednesday. It's got uh, runs for a couple of weeks. The early swell indications are not good. It's, I don't think it's going to be big because we like to see big swells coming in for the Bells comp. But there's a chance for it in the second week. So, But we'll be talking about that in detail later on in the show. Okay, I've got a couple of quick news items I want to mention. Um, study which has just appeared in current biology um, from people who are working at the Australian Institute for Marine Science in Townsville has just shown that um, coral trout in protected marine zones, or green zones as they're called, so where it's no taking, not allowed to go fishing, and the Great Barrier Reef and other places were rezoned in 2004, so they increased the no take area by, well, to about a third now of the the Great Barrier Reef and that's showing definite effects. People have done studies and they're showing that you find twice the amount of coral trout or twice the biomass actually in the green zones than you do outside and very interestingly these areas are showing a lot more resistance to cyclone damage insofar as the, the number of trout that you get. That's interesting. Yeah. Very positive. It is. So you know people always kind of wonder about the green zones with with fishing if they are really good and this is one of the first bits of really hard evidence were two showing that so this has been a study which is done over many years with lots of different people involved getting out there diving counting the coral trout and they've found that yep you get lots of big fat coral trout in the green zones hanging out there protecting themselves from um, getting away from the fishing mm. and that they are of course seeding the rest of the population so this has got really good overall effects for the entire population of the coral trout and if people are worried about the numbers fishing them it actually increases the numbers outside so no matter how you look at it it's a good thing one other quick news item this is a presser we got from um, sea shepherd is that the sam simon last weekend last saturday resupplied the bob barker in its ongoing pursuit of the poaching vessel thunder thunder is a nigerian registered ship which has been um what's well, one of the six baddies that are on an international blacklist um they're poaching the toothfish that are out there and the and this is where sorry down in antarctica down in the south so the um yeah so the captain of the bob bob barker peter hammerstedt peter hammerstedt said the return of the sam simon is one more nail in the coffin of the thunder uh when it comes 
Um, we know that we have a disposal, uh, we, we have a ready support network that can and will outmatch anything the funder has available to them. So, um, yeah, so the Bob Barker's been chasing this for about 98 days, as it's a world record for chasing a ship. They're down now in the Southern Ocean, they've rounded the Cape um, around South Africa, and this is pretty amazing and it's fantastic so this is the second time that um the bob barker has been resupplied so mm. it can keep going um yeah mm. very good good luck to them absolutely anyway let's move on to some serious yeah, let's science talk, let's talk about wormholes um not the cosmological kind but literally the holes that that worms dig and other burrowing animals and it turns out that charles darwin had this idea in fact it was his last publication he um he postulated that there was a lot of action happening from things burrowing in the soil, soil on land, and also the sediment below the sea and in estuaries, although I'm not sure if he was thinking that far ahead then. But um, a couple of papers have come out this week, or one big paper in particular this week, which has addressed that issue and lending a lot more hard scientific evidence to to make us believe that this is really indeed an important thing. But I'm not an expert on this, but the person who is is Dr Perrin Cook. How are you going, Perrin? Good, thanks, Dr. Beach. How are you? I'm very well. So tell us about this paper that's just come out and exactly what what we're calling bioturb- bioturbation is. Yeah, so maybe I'll um, just go a bit over what, what bioturbation is. So a- as you mentioned, um, the first person to really notice that this might be something important was uh, Charles Darwin, and he noticed that... Um, yeah, if you if you put a layer of, of chalk on the surface of the soil and came back years later, that that layer would be mixed down deep centimetres, tens of centimetres below the surface. And so he postulated that this was due to the activity of worms mixing the soil. Um, and so I think that this observation really pricked his imagination and he, I think he spent his last years um, looking at this and, and apparently that... The um, it's been said that gardeners actually thought that earthworms were were a nuisance or a pest before this. It was really um, Darwin's observations on on the the activity of earthworms in in terms of soil health that, that changed this this attitude. So it's a bit of interesting trivia for you. I would have thought gardeners would have always thought earthworms were great, but and now we rejoice in them. We have earth farms, and we know what well, earth farm earth, worm, worm farms, farms. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, we know they're a fantastic. But was Darwin able to prove this in his time? Not really, no. So I, I suppose he, he, he wrote this, he, he wrote a treatise on it or this book on it, and it was really put down for, for over a century. And, and even depending on the field you're in, in my field certainly, the, the importance of this has only been recognised in the past few decades. So, so it's quite remarkable that the observations of someone from over 200 years ago really have only now just recently been, not, not around nearly 200, not quite 200, 150, 200 years ago. Um, have, have now been picked up and are, and are still the, the ramifications of it are still being realised today. So it's not only earthworms; it's, it's any burrowing animal, if you like, and that can be. Um, we have those not only on Earth in the soil, but also um, in estuarine environments um, on the surface of the sea. There are lots of different things, like shrimp, and even one of the papers you sent me to, to have a look at reminded me that you get things like stingrays, which disturb the the sediment a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it can be exactly. It can be any any. Um, obviously, it's more than worms. Um, even uh, groundhogs and gophers and things that bury <laughs> that, that, that burrow. <laughs> 
classed as biotobitus. And, and as you said, it's, it's not just happening in the in the terrestrial realm. It's actually one of the most widespread um, physical processes. It, it, it's from from the tops of mountains through to, to the abyssal plains in the ocean. So, four thousand meters depth. Even that sort of what people used to think as lifeless plains are, if you look closely, are actively mixed very actively mixed by, by brittle stars and, and things called bioturbators. So this paper, this recent paper, which has come out in Nature Geoscience that, that you're excited about, what, what's the significance of that? How is that underscoring the importance of this for us? Okay, so I suppose as, as geologists have... Um, well, as the geological view of the, worth of the Earth has, has, um, has matured or, or as it's progressed, people have um, begun to realise that this, this mixing has ramifications for how the earth has changed over the millennia so obviously through, through evolution uh, biotobaters haven't always existed so the first life before the well, pr- prior to the cambrian explosion life was pretty boring basically it was it was slime and, and the much. cambrian explosion remind me it was what 500 million years yeah, ago around around five, yeah. yeah so it's when when there was a massive, and I'm not an expert on the Cambrian explosion, but basically, I think in a nutshell, it's when many different types of life started to evolve. There was, there was a huge um, explosion in the number of, when, in the biodiversity of life. So before that, the world was pretty well one-dimensional. Basically, it was laminated mats of, of algae, and, and, and as organisms started to evolve. I suppose they call it an, an arms race in terms of predator-prey evolution, and, and burrowing and, and, and mixing of the sediment is one of the one of the traits of, of life that, that came about. Uh, and that and that mixing of of the sediments had quite large ramifications for how how the the, the Earth changed or, or led to major changes in the Earth. So during the Cambrian explosion, there was just like kind of algal mats and bacterial mats on the surface of the sea, for example, and then once you started to get different animals evolving who were then burrowing and churning over all the sediment and all the goodies that go along with it, that that then fed the, the evolution of more things, which then took off and enjoyed these new niches and new bits of stuff to eat. I guess exactly. So, and, and 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 as I said before, then it also the, these changes in the sediment people think led to changes in in the um, in the evolution of, of in terms of the chemistry of the earth. So, for example, oxygen in the atmosphere. There's a there's a hypothesis that the activity of um, bioturbators on in the terrestrial realm led to more erosion because we know we now know that um, erosion or the breakdown of the earth's crust and so erosion and there's erosion in the bad sense we think of it as farmland but of course um, the, the the breakdown of bedrock is fundamentally what creates soil so so the erosion of that bedrock into soil that's you know, known to be enhanced by by biological organisms mixing the soil because you have the initial chemical breakdown of the rock the bioturbators come in and mix that away and or mix the breakdown products away leads to exposure of more surface area and so so that that weathering of, of the bedrock is enhanced through so how, how do we connect that with an increase in oxygen in the atmosphere because it's my understanding that there was very little oxygen in the atmosphere of early earth say like you know four billion four and a half billion years ago and that that accumulated through the next two billion years through the action of early photosynthetic organisms like you know photosynthetic bacteria blue green algae like we have now and that that's what gave us the oxygen in the atmosphere so you're saying that there's something 
different involved in that, that, that the reason we had this accumulation of oxygen in the atmosphere was due to this bioturbation as well? Well, so, so just um, going back to the question, so, of course, to have oxygen in the atmosphere, you need the production of oxygen by photosynthesis, as, as you pointed out. Which is always an amazing thing to, for, for me to, to remind myself of, that we wouldn't have oxygen in the atmosphere that we breathe unless it were for all the organisms that are doing photosynthesis, including half of it's coming from the algae out in the yeah, ocean. half of it's coming yeah, from the ocean, yeah. But, but on top of the oxygen production, you also... So, of course, the corollary of oxygen production is organic matter production but to maintain that oxygen in the atmosphere you need to take away the organic matter because if you let it decay again the oxygen is consumed yeah. and as the way carbon dioxide as, exactly it's as, right. as carbon dioxide now i've got it so you need to bury that organic matter you need to bury the carbon so it doesn't mix with the oxygen and then become carbon dioxide exactly cool. and so one of the ideas was that as uh, the the continental crust started to erode more there's more clay being put into the ocean and it's the association of particles more sedimentation that actually drives that burial of organic matter. So these dudes who have just published this paper in Nature Geoscience have shown what, and they are from all sorts of different places, from Denmark mostly, I see. Yeah, so, so that, that, is, um, that particular paper is, again, another, sort of, another facet of, of um, bioturbation. And so what, what they were saying is that... So, obviously, as, as we discussed, life... Um, uh, photos, uh, photosynthesis is what put, yeah. puts oxygen into the atmosphere, and now now we're coming back to sort of my my home turf. It's <laughs> what do you need to have photosynthesis occur? And of course, you need nutrients. And so, two of those important nutrients are nitrogen and phosphorus. And so, what this paper is talking about is um, how bioturbation has has influenced the availability of phosphorus. So we know that when we start um, digging up sediment and mixing it with oxygen, phosphorus sticks to the sediment more. So what this paper is postulating is that as the bioturbators started mixing up the sediment, more phosphorus stuck to the sediment. So the amount of phosphorus available for, for photosynthesis in the ocean decreased. So that was then a negative feedback on the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. So, 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 but it's, it's, if you go through the literature, it's, it's postulated to have both negative and positive feedbacks in the amount of oxygen. Positive in the sense that more, more um, erosion means more organic matter burial, and also negative in the sense that the more digging you have in the sediment, the more um, burial of phosphorus that you have, yeah. or, the, or the less bioavailable it is. So the photosynthetic organisms can't put pump out so much oxygen into the atmosphere. And photosynthetic organisms, like all organisms, need phosphorus just to, to build, you know, baby cells. And mm. Right. Yeah. So how is this relevant locally? Are there any examples of where you... I mean, say in Port Phillip Bay, for example, do we see... Obviously, there, well, there must be a lot of bioturbation happening there, and does this explain any issues that might have been up in the air until now? Yeah, so coming back to the, the local context, um, why, why am I interested in this? So there's a, there's a couple of great local examples, as you point out, about how important bioturbation is. So Port Phillip Bay, um, by and large, is, is pretty healthy when you consider the that there's 4 million people living along its shores. We actually discharge about half of the, I should say, very highly treated um, sewage to to the bay so the western treatment plant and and there's a lot of nitrogen in that um in that discharge now the bay can actually um or has historically and we think will continue to cope um extremely well with all that that nutrient 
or nitrogen. And the reason for that is that the, the sediments in the bay are very efficient at removing that nitrogen. The process by which they remove that bioavailable nitrogen is called denitrification. So bacteria in the sediment, they convert um, nitrate, which is plant food effectively. It's what, it's what allows plants to grow. And, of course, nitrogen is important, but if there's too much, one of the, the downsides of that is you get too much algal growth. And I suppose an example of that, an obvious example, is all this sea lettuce that you see sometimes accumulating yeah, around yeah. Altona. The green that, seaweed. Yeah, the green seaweed, exactly. Not that we don't like seaweed in general. No, seaweed is important. It's, it's fish food. Yeah. Um, so the the bay, by and large, is, is excellent at removing lots of nitrogen, and the reason for that is that um, the sediments remove nitrogen, and one of the key things that really drives that in, in the bay, we think, is, is this bioturbation, is the, the mixing of the sediment. And the reason for that is it mixes both oxygen and, and nitrate into the sediment, and that um, really enhances this nitrogen removal process. And that bioturbation in the bay is happening through, like, worms and what other organisms? Yeah, worms, brittle stars, for example. Those are, those are some of the examples of, of organisms. Calian acid shrimp in Western Port's a great example of, of something we know that really enhances this nitrogen removal process. So people have actually done the experiments on their shrimp and shown that without them you don't get this mixing of nitrogen. Yeah, yeah. So people around the world, and we've done them ourselves, you basically look at how much nitrogen is removed through this process of denitrification and then you count the number of shrimp and you always see these, these beautifully strong um, relationships between the two. Cool. That's fascinating. Thanks, Perrin. Um, Perrin Cook, Dr. Perrin Cook from um, Department of Chemistry. I always forget, Perrin. Yeah, Which, chem- School of Chemistry. School of Chemistry at Monash University in Clayton. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about wormholes. No problem. It's a pleasure. And we're joined by two special guests, one on the phone, Bob Smith. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Rod. And in the studio we have John Collins. Good morning, John. Good morning, doctors, surf and beach. <laughs> and Bob. Thanks very much for uh, giving us your time on this. I know is a busy day for you. Uh, Bob, you're the historian and archivist for Rip Curl down in uh, Torquay. Yeah, that's correct. Great job. I love it. Oh, I know. I'm envious. <laughs> now, we're here just to first of all go through uh, the history of the Bells competition. And for those listeners who don't know, Bells, in my mind, is one of the longest-running professional surf competitions in the world. Is that right? That's correct. It's the longest-running professional surf contest in the world. It started way back in uh, 1962 uh, when a couple of uh, Victorian pioneers from down here, Vic Tanto and Peter Troy, kicked it off, and then it went professional in 1973 when Rip Curl got behind it. And the uh, the ASA, the Australian Surf Riders Association, have had a long um, association, if you excuse the pun, with the competition too. When did they come in to start? Yeah, they came in in 1964, Rod. Uh, Peter Troy, uh, as a lot of people know, decided to go overseas for three years. And uh, as I just said, he and Vic Tando kicked it off. Peter went overseas in May 63, and the Victorian ASA was formed at the end of 1963. So they took over the running of the event uh, in 1964. Now, has the competition always been run at Easter? Uh, the only year it wasn't run at Easter was the first year, that was 1962. Uh, it was originally planned for uh, the 31st of December 1961, but it, it clashed with the Surf Lifesaving Club event down here at Torquay, so Vic and Peter moved it into 1962 into the Australia Day weekend. So that's the 
only year that it hasn't been run over Easter. And again, for the for the listeners who are not um, fully aware of surf and surf conditions, why Easter? of the uh, the long Easter break. Uh, Glenn Ritchie, who came down from Sydney that first year, he was really impressed with the waves down here. And he went back to Sydney and told all his mates about it. And uh, they had a bit of a chat with uh, Vic and Peter and they thought that Easter would be a better time slot with the longer holiday break. Yeah, and it's also um, when the big waves start coming in. And can you just remind us what years we had some really large swells coming in uh, for the Easter comp? Uh, the two standout years, Rod, are 1965 and 1981, and coincidentally uh, it's 50 years this Easter since 1965 when the waves were absolutely huge. Uh, we're talking 15 to 20 feet. Uh, Rob Keneally from Bondi won that year. Uh, Rob, Rob was hoping to get back this year with it being 50 years since that big Easter. The other one that everyone really remembers is 1981, and I'm sure John was around in that time, and that was Simon Anderson's year. Simon won for the second time. Uh, the waves once again were huge. We're talking 15 feet plus, and that was the year that Simon Anderson introduced his thruster surfboard to the world. That's right. That's the three-fin board, which is still overwhelmingly dominant. I do remember that day vividly for personal reasons is that prior to uh, thrusters, we were riding little twin fins, and I tried to ride a twin fin that day in these huge waves and came out with three cracked ribs. <laughs> <laughs> Served me right. Three cracked ribs is a uh, sign there. Three fins. Yes. <laughs> Bob, Bob, it's Dr. Bob, it's Dr. Beach here. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. What I'm wondering, you say 1965 we had huge swells and 1981 we had huge swells. Is there any way that we can predict just sort of one week out now whether what the conditions are going to be like for the Bells competition this year? I know that swells are something you can't predict a long way out, but what about a week out? Uh, yeah, look, uh, the research uh, that goes into predictions now is, is very elaborate, uh, and a week out you can hazard, hazard a bit of a guess. We're coming into a warmer pattern with northerly winds and, and good weather, and that's usually a sign that the swells around here aren't going to be that big. Uh, fortunately, the Rip Curl Pro is one of those events uh, that it can be relocated. And once again, as John would know, uh, Johanna is an option. And if the winds or if the swells are small, the winds go north, northeast. Uh, the event's actually been run at Phillip Island one day and 13th Beach is another option. So if the swells aren't that good uh, or aren't that big, we do have really good options. And a week out from today, the swells aren't looking fantastic, uh, but let's keep our fingers crossed for an increase in swell size. And what dates is the competition on this year? Uh, the first is, uh, well, the first of April, April Fool's Day, um, and running through for 10 days after that. Okay. Now, you've got a special day on down there today uh, around the history of the, the Bells Comp. What's that? Uh, yeah, several years ago, maybe eight or ten years ago, um, a few of us put our heads together with Max Wells at Surfing Victoria and we came up with the concept of uh, a Victorian Pioneers Day. So the Sunday before the event starts, we invite all Victorian surfing pioneers to come down to Bells, to the site, and uh, Max Wells, the CEO, uh, gives us a tour around the site. It's a great opportunity for the older Victorian pioneers 
only as surfers to get together, have a chat, reminisce, talk some story, and uh, Max now clears the water for us, so he gives us an hour out there by ourselves with no one out there at Bells, and we've got a beautiful two to three foot swell today and a sunny day, so I'm certainly into the wetsuit and getting out there. <laughs> can, can I just take you back? You mentioned that Max, was it Swells, was the CEO, Max is it Max Wells? Yes. A nice elision there, Max Swells. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll tell him you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, surely, others, surely someone else has noticed that. <laughs> now, uh, just on Pioneers Day, do you need to be an ex-competitor to come along, or is anyone, um, everyone welcome? No, uh, every, everyone is welcome. You don't need to be an ex-competitor. Uh, anyone, uh, well, probably over the age of 50, we, we don't even say 50, but yeah, basically if you've, you know, you've got a feel for Victorian surfing and, and you've been surfing here in Victoria, you might have been an administrator. We've had lots of the ex-administrators come along who haven't had a competitive surfing background and it's just a really good catch-up day and talk story and, yeah, few tall stories come out. And what time's that on? Uh, we usually get there around 11 o'clock. Okay, well, if you're down in the area and you'd like to go along, today's a great day to do it. Well, thanks very much for your time, Bob, and um, um, uh, for all the history of, of this great surf competition, which starts on Wednesday, I think. And uh, hopefully the big waves will come in at least for the second week. Uh, pleasure, Rod. I hope so. Okay, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. And that was Bob Smith, who has, I reckon, one of the best jobs in the world. <laughs> Historian and archivist for Rip Curl, who have been associated with the uh, Bells competition since 1973. And have, if anyone's interested in the history of Bells, there's a great book that came out for the 50th anniversary several years ago. Um, it's called Bells Beach, 50 Years of History or something like that. And who put that out? Michael Gordon. Michael Gordon, uh, senior. Age. That's, well, I think he's still, still the senior editor at the Age. Yeah, and that's a terrific uh, book. It goes through every year. The winner, uh, some little stories that happen. Michael's been around in surfing for a very long time. I remember. Uh, I've surf. still got clippings that Michael put out about uh, when he was writing about uh, the, the Bell's Beach Survey competition from 1971 with with a really terrible black and white shot <laughs> someone trying to do a I think a stretch five or something in the shore break at Bells from about 1972 who are the favourites for this year guys well I guess it depends who you talk to I mean uh, you know some of the young Brazilians coming through now are, um, are on fire um, I don't know. Who do you think, Dr. Sir? Well, it, you're right. There seems to be... A, a, we're in a sort of a transition at the moment. We're, the the s competitive side of surfing's been dominated by Kelly Slater for, mm. well, 15 years now. Plus the Australians, like uh, Mick Fanning. He's won three times now. Yeah, Parko's always a threat. But they're beginning to age a little bit, although I must say Kelly Slater seems ageless. He's mm. over 40 and still competing. And, and I think the next wave that's coming through are the Brazilians who always threatened to to start to dominate and, and a Brazilian won the world title last year so yeah look I think one of the one of the surfers I've been telling my my boys my two sons and son-in-law who are all very keen surfers to watch out watch out for is uh, Julian Wilson I think Julian is absolutely on fire at the moment and uh, definitely some someone worth watching 
uh, brilliant surfer. What about on the girls' side? It's not just a male competition now, is it? Well, it's it's pretty hard to go past. Uh, well, there's a few of them. Stephanie Gilmore obviously has been up there for a while now, and she's Stephanie is so talented. And uh, it's really interesting, actually, with talking to Bob with the history of Bells. There's just been some incredibly talented uh, female surfers on the tour over the years, and, and Stephanie is certainly a standout. I mean, Lane Beachley was another one that performed brilliantly at Bells. And, and um, Are they both surfing this year? Well, Lane's not. Lane's been retired for a few years now, but uh, Stephanie is definitely up there. And, and um, yeah, there's quite, a few, there's quite a few of them. I mean... Women's surfing is so advanced now. It's 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 always been fantastic to watch, but now they're just amazing. What they yeah, do, I think it's incredible. That's a really cogent comment. Uh, listeners will remember that there was a, a movie shown in the city late last year called Spirit of Akasha, mm-hmm. and it was was made by Andrew Kidman. And one of the things he did was get copies of the old boards that were ridden in the morning of the earth competition and give them to assorted surfers and i was talking to a few of the older guys down at point leo after that and they all agreed that the standout surfer of that movie was stephanie gilmore Mm. on a on a copy of the board that michael um peterson rode in the movie and she yeah that when i was young there was a distinct gap between male surfers and female surfers but that's gone now I think the female surface is just outstanding. Mm. Now, just to remind listeners or viewers, as Johnny Bond goes would say, <laughs> uh, we are joined in the studio by John Collins. John, you were the uh, executive director of, of the Australian Surf Rise Association, Victorian branch, from eighty-seven to ninety-three. Is that is that correct? That's correct. And in that period, you were also running the Bells competition. Yes, that's right. Uh, probably the major role in, in that position, uh, the Victorian Surf Riders Association, I guess, owned the event, if you can own an event, and uh, the major role for me was to organise the competition. And you told me an interesting story during the week about how you actually got that job, and, and I think it's it's a good illustration about how things were in surfing in those days and how perhaps they've changed. Yeah, it's funny talking about those days. It is a long time ago now, isn't it, 1987? <laughs> but uh, I was uh, a surfer, you know, on the East Coast, living down uh, on the peninsula, and um, the then executive director of surf riders, Simon Callett, um, he decided to go off on to the Melbourne Osaka solo yacht race pretty much at the last minute. I don't think he gave them a lot of notice and they really needed someone to uh, to put the event on. Um, I was running a surf school down on the peninsula in the early days when no one really ran surf schools and uh, the committee called me. I think it was probably because Phil Trigger was on the committee and I had a good relationship with mm-hmm. Alan Atkins as yep. well. And gave me a call and said, John, we need someone to come over and run the event. Are you interested in coming over? And spoke to my wife. We just had our first child. And she said, oh, OK, we'll go over there for a bit of a holiday and stay <laughs> for a few weeks. So, yeah, we went over and um, I, I organised the event, the first event. Didn't really know a lot about... Because, you know, I'd been out of the out of the business for a while other than just surfing i didn't really know the professional surfers very well and one of the first things i had to do was uh organize the media conference it was up in the city at uh department of sport and recreation and we had you okay. know, eddie mcguire there and all those <laughs> sorts of people and uh i i had to introduce all the pro surfers and i really didn't know who was who which was very embarrassing and there was a young 
young surfer sitting near me that year, this is 87, just a young kid, he was only 15, and I said, do you think you can help me identify who these pro surfers are? And he said, yeah, no worries. And I said, who are you anyway? And he said, oh, look, I'm here with my uncle, Mark Richards. He brought me down so I could go in the trials. <laughs> I said, fantastic. Anyway, he was great, this kid. His name was Nicky Wood. He introduced me to all the, all the surfers and helped me out. And then, uh, as it turned out, in the end, Nicky Wood en- ended up going through the trials and winning the main event and, and really created history that year. This, this young 15-year-old boy came from nowhere, from Newcastle and uh, won the event, so, you know, I was amazed. Yeah, that was an amazing year, and it's worth pointing out that his uncle, Mark Richards, was four times world champion, so... And three times Bells champion yeah, as he, well. he so. was someone who would know everybody. Surfing royalty. Certainly That's a wonderful right. guy. Uh, but, yeah, I remember vividly when Nicky Wood, there was a real... It was almost like a, a, a an AFL finals because there was this swell of interest around, will he go all the way, and mm. he actually ended up doing yeah. doing just that. Now, when you first started running the competition, it was pretty much just a surf competition, but during your period, it evolved into something else. Yeah, I think, like, it, obviously, Bobby talking about the event from 1962, it, it, it transitioned over the years to get bigger and bigger every year. But, and, but I think during my time, I think a pivotal event that occurred was the guys at Rip Curl, the art department, was actually a guy called Neil Campbell, introduced me to some people from Triple M. Um, Carl Gardner was one of them. Shirley Strawn was the other one. And they were really instrumental in... um, in turning the event into more of a into more of a festival type event, Australian Crawl had sponsored the event a few years earlier, and they certainly added that rock and roll flavour mm. to it. But then I think Shirley, and they also brought in a guy called um, Ian Smith from the Australian Rock Foundation, and between Ian and Shirley and Carl. They were fantastic. They were, and particularly Shirley, who who had a huge interest in surfing. He was a surfer himself, and he did a lot of work in in you know really bringing that event up to to a modern a modern event. You know, it had a real rock and roll flavour to it. It was yeah. fantastic, and 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 it was you know really tragic when 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 Shirley passed away some years later. Yeah, Shirley was the lead singer of Skyhooks, a long-term member of the Phillip Island Board Riders, and, yeah, very sadly died in a helicopter accident many years ago. Ah, ah, ah. And welcome back. And we're joined in the studio again by uh, John Collins, who ran the Bells Beat competition between 87 and 93. John, we were discussing just before the carts how the competition evolved from just a simple surf competition to what was called the Bells Beach Festival. Bells Beach Surfing Festival. What did the festival involve? Uh, well, I think there was, Rod, there was a, a real... I mean, obviously there's a very strong focus on the surfing, but we brought a lot of music into the event and we started to think about, um, as the event became more popular, more VIPs would want to come along to the event, so you had to cater for the VIPs. Um, and, and, you know, we had to build more sort of infrastructure at the event to look after them. You'd, you'd have your, you know, your neighbours, stars and home and away and all the rest. And I actually remember one of the first VIPs that came along was Sylvester Stallone's <laughs> very first wife. Uh, Sasha was her name with his son. And I think his son's name was Sage, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Okay. But... Um, Sasha had just been recently divorced from Sylvester and it was apparently the biggest divorce 
pay out in the world. And I remember she came along and she wanted to go up in a chopper during the event to film the event. She was out in Australia producing a movie or something. And everyone just was so scared of her having anything to do with cliffs at bells or choppers or surf or anything else. So there was, you know, really people like Shirley were great just to be able to help you manage that sort of next level of of important people and rock and roll bands and getting music in and, and running some of the events, the after-event parties and all that sort of stuff. And Shirley was great for the commentary too. He was brilliant. Yeah, like, I, such I a remember, funny guy. remember that. Now, when you first started, as far as infrastructure goes, it was limited to a double-decker bus. That's right, it was, yeah. It's, it's come a long way since there. I mean, infrastructure on the beach has always been a challenge because it's such an environmentally sensitive area. And... Um, you know, it, it's for me personally. It's there's always been a lot of, uh, I guess, tension there because uh, you know, Bells has a lot of significance to me as a surfer, and um, you know, there are environmental issues. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of issues with the, with the cliffs, um, the erosion around the cliffs, the hooded plover. There's pr- protected species, mm. um, and when you bring in a big event like that every year, it obviously has an impact that needs to be managed. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of infrastructure there, and it's quite difficult. But I think it's been managed pretty well, actually, over the years. Uh, there's, you know, grandstands and pavilions and you know catering areas and car parking is a massive headache at bells as you yeah. can imagine it's a rural area and, and uh, how did how did you uh, get around the car parking issue well one of the local owners there who's actually a qc who owns a farm down at bells we used to um give him a vip pass every year and <laughs> convince him to let us open up his farm gate so we'd um manage to park all the all the cars into the event and uh, a lot of local people would help with the parking in the early days. Eventually, you know, we, we, we developed um, or we employed professional security and all the rest of it so that we'd look after all of that. But, um, yeah, it was quite a challenge, particularly on the wet days when, when the, the rains had arrived and it was muddy, as you often get over Easter, trying to... You know, move a few thousand cars through the car park. I, I don't follow the competition, but I do remember seeing photographs of on classic wet years where it's just a, you know, it's a stagmire, as George Bush would have said. People buried up to the axles in mud. Oh, well, that was there. one of the biggest challenges, actually. And in, in the early days, was uh, just remind me, was the car park asphalted or was it still. When I started, mud? it was asphalt. Yeah. Before that, when I was younger, you know, I used to go along to the event, Bobby was talking about. 81 in those years, well, it was just a dirt car park and it was, you know, cars would be slipping and sliding and sliding halfway down the cliff. But you've got a lot of buses coming in now, haven't you? From oh, yeah. Places. You have. You've got all that. You've got all that sort of thing and, you know, I guess that's progress. But, um, you know, I, I suppose like all of us that are getting to a certain age, we look back to those, those old days and uh, think how great it was. But, you know, a lot of people... The amazing thing about the event now is I don't know if anyone's ever you know if your listeners have had a chance to jump on the internet and and look at the webcast of the the event but it's absolutely amazing i think surfing in terms of sports events that webcast do it better than anyone that's a good point you make because there was a there's a different focus now um in other words a different focus on who your primary audience is now to when you were running the event can you just tell us what that difference is 
Yeah, well, look, in those days, the event was owned by the Australian Surf Riders Association, and I saw my role was to bring the world's best surfers to Victoria, to Bells Beach, for our members to actually go along and see the world's best surfers. Um, these days, the event is owned by the World Surf League, which is the professional tour body, and it's really about a global broadcast. They have millions of people tuning into this event. So the focus has shifted considerably, and if you look at the event itself, the, the broadcast is, is brilliant. They have cameras, you know, from every angle. They've got on-the-beach commentary. They've got, you know, it, it, it's definitely worth a have a look if you haven't seen it but it is quite a shift in the focus of who your target audience is it's changed a lot over the last 30 years or so and there are implications in that about whether if the surf's small as bob was saying the surf's going to be small for the next week whether you relocate because i remember us talking about relocation was a bit of a controversial topic back in your day but these days it's all about finding the best waves because the primary audience is not on the beach. That's right. And, and you know, the last year that I uh, was tournament director was 1993 and um, the surf was very small that year. And, and with the surfing event, the best laid plans... Three o'clock in the morning, you wake up, and I lived down there, and I'd wake up in the morning, and there'd be no swell, and you'd just go into a cold sweat in the middle of the night. Because it doesn't matter how well organised you were, if there was no surf, you didn't know what to do, um, which makes it quite different to any other sporting event. But that last year in 93, um, there was quite a bit of pressure from the owners of Rip Curl, and rightly so, because they had a long-term vision for the event, to move the event down to Joanna, where the surf was was really good quality and bigger but I was really reluctant to move it away from Bells because I knew that on that Easter Monday in those days you didn't have a waiting period so on that Easter Monday that event had to run and I knew there'd be 10,000 or so people coming down to Bells Beach to watch the event but we did move it that year we moved it down to uh, Joanna and uh, that was a pretty controversial move for lots of reasons actually but I think it, it in, in a lot of ways it opened up the door to to surfing to professional surfing to to showcase these surfers in the best waves that um decision it's interesting joanna's about for those of you who don't know is about three hours west of bells it's quite a long windy drive so you wouldn't get a large crowd down there because it's so difficult for the average person to get there but these days the the competition because as you mentioned before the in the early days, competitions were owned by... Each competition was owned by a different group of discrete people mm-hmm. and it was loosely joined together by the association. But now this one group owns all the competitions. Is that is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And, and the, the, the sites that they are running competitions, some of them are very remote, but these are the best waves in the world. Mm. And, and it's just harping back again. It's all about the internet, the visual splendour of these waves, like... G-Land and those sorts of places where you'd be lucky to get 50 people because it's a very, very... G-Land is stuck out how, how many miles out in the ocean? It's well, a reef that's... That's right. I mean, look, you know, Fiji, Cloudbreak, these sorts of places, that they are very remote and, you know, quite inaccessible to the general public. But the power of the internet, it actually brings these events and these incredible waves to, to people, mm. you know, in their own homes, which is 
which really is amazing. But I mean, I still love the traditional events. I love bells. I love uh, pipeline. You know, uh, in Hawaii, um, Superbank up in Queensland, mm. the, the event that's just finished. I mean, these are just fantastic events with big local crowds, and yeah, they're quite exciting to watch them. Just on the crowds. Uh, you mentioned you had to hire a, or chose to hire a security firm. Was security ever really a big problem in your day down at Bells? Um, well, not really. I mean, we did hire security firms. One of the one of the um, sources of income for the Surf Riders Association was the gate. So we charge people to come into Bells, which wasn't done typically for surfing events around the world. And there were a lot of surfers that didn't really appreciate having to pay to, to go to their own beach to watch surfing. Um, so from time to time we had a bit of an issue with that, but generally, and at night there'd always be someone sneaking in to try and knock off a Bose speaker or, or, mm-hmm. uh, or one of Rip Curl's uh, banners. But uh, generally, everyone was pretty good. We had, you know, very few issues with surfers paddling out during an event. During yeah, an I was event. wondering if you ever had to send actually clear the water like they do in Hawaii send the black shirts out the throat. No, we, did, we didn't have that. We didn't really have that in water security then. We didn't need it. Like, one of the great things about you know, surfers, local surfers around Torquay and Victorian surfers in general, I think they are pretty respectful of um, these types of events. You know, they appreciate the, the, these great surfers. Like, it's a, Victoria is a very hardcore surfing state and, you know, it's like uh, with football. You know, they say Victorians really understand football and they really do understand surfing and they appreciate it. So never an issue there. Yeah, and I guess it, the competition has been going for so long, as Bob said, there's, there's never really been an Easter in, in our collective memory when there hasn't been a competition there so look it's it's golf it, bells is is a it's it's an iconic sporting event for our state and uh we need to maintain it keep it and and be interested in it great well thanks very much for your time bob it's been a pleasure to talk to you sorry john that was a very bad slip i need <laughs> i need my coffee so with that we're going to uh yeah we had but we well we were joined by bob smith on the phone from um he's the recall surf historian and we've been talking to john collins here in the studio who's the director of was, the yeah. or was the director of the victorian surf association and before that we had perrin cook from monash uni talking about wormholes You've been listening to Radio Marinara. Next week we're going to have Anth in the studio and if you're getting down to Bells and whatever you're doing for the rest of the day, have fun. Bye-bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.